on. I'm on three seats. <laughs> Look, there goes the game. You're listening to Ithaca Now. WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Inbaini Andarasan. Thank you for joining us. On tonight's show, WICB news correspondents Andrew Garapo and myself look into criminal justice and police reform in Ithaca through the lens of Tompkins County District Attorney Matt Van Houten and News Director Himadri Sait talks to representatives from the History Center in Tompkins County about Halloween-themed events this spooky season. But first, we have Emma Kirsting and Beck Lagato with Community Beat. Plans to decarbonize the Tompkins County government's building stock have reached an estimated budget of $28 million and a target date to complete construction by 2026. On Tuesday, the Tompkins County Legislator received a presentation from Arel Lamaro, the county's director of facilities, on the Green Facilities Capital Project. The plan only applies to buildings owned by the Tompkins County government. Amid the rise in violence in Ithaca, Mayor Svante Murek has announced a policy response Thursday to combat the large rise in crime. Murek laid out a, quote, all of the above approach, which would include targeted law enforcement and better infrastructure. The city is also increasing investments into specialized organizations made to solve the root of crime in the area. The Tompkins County Health Department is sharing updates on COVID-19 vaccination clinic planning for ages 5 to 11 years old and pending announcements about the approval of Moderna and Johnson & Johnson booster doses. TCHD is encouraging all eligible individuals to get vaccinated or receive a booster dose when they are available. The Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine has completed its clinical trials for youth ages 5 to 11 and is expected to receive authorization from the FDA for use by early November. From August 1st to Tuesday, the Tompkins County Health Department collected data on COVID-19 rates over the past couple of months. The data was presented Tuesday to the Tompkins County Legislature and showed that there have been a total of 65 active COVID-19 hospitalizations over the course of these few months. 44 of them were unvaccinated, while the remaining 21 were vaccinated, while the average age of those hospitalized was 55 for those who were unvaccinated and 77 for those who were vaccinated. The Planning and Economic Development Committee discussed tenant protections on Wednesday, voting to circulate the bill and setting up what's sure to be a month of feedback. Good cause eviction legislation, also known as right to renew, prevents landlords from removing tenants without first obtaining an order from an Ithaca City Court judge, which would be codified into law, among other protections for tenants. None were injured as a large fire broke out at the homeless encampment Saturday afternoon. While there were no reported injuries, this homeless encampment, often referred to as, quote, the jungle, was completely destroyed by the fire. Thomas Basher, the spokesperson for the Ithaca Fire Department, said that fires in the area are common, but as of now, there have been no confirmation as to the cause of the fire. For Emma Kirsting, I'm Beck Legato. Welcome back to Ithaca Now on 92 WICB. I'm your host, Inbaini Anbarasan. Stories of violent crime in recent weeks have been very concerning to the local community, with even Mayor Savante Myrick commenting on the issue recently, saying that the city of Ithaca and the police are working to curb this problem. 
WICB news correspondents Andrew Garapo and I started an investigation into this matter, beginning with a conversation with Tompkins County District Attorney Matt Van Houten in this first episode of a multi-part series. Crime rates across the country are rising, and stories of violent crimes seem to flood local publications in Tompkins County. We at WICB are investigating the nature of police and criminal justice reform in Ithaca, as well as the state of New York, in the aftermath of the George Floyd protests and amidst the perceived increasing crime rates. I'm Inbaini Anbarasan, and this week, Andrew Garapo and I talked to the District Attorney Matt Van Houten about crime and punishment in Tompkins County. Today, we will be playing the first part of our conversation with him, going into further detail in the next episode. This is my fifth year as, as DA, and I ran because I felt like, as, as you said, this is such an important position in terms of setting policy and setting priorities for what to prosecute and, and the philosophy of a DA's office um, can have a significant effect on the community. And, and so our community is very much focused on alternatives to incarceration, minimizing the jail population, sure, uh, sure. decriminalizing poverty uh, related offenses and, and property crimes and uh, you know focusing on public safety from a public health perspective and from a, you know, a well-being of the community perspective as opposed to a punitive perspective. So the experience I had for my first 20 years as a lawyer was representing people on family court and representing indigent criminal defendants and representing kids, um, you know, and I think that all, all that experience and all those perspectives give me a good perspective on the other side of the aisle and you know, in, this, in this office. So Absolutely. Um, according to recent IPD stats, overall violent crime has gone down. A lot of crime has gone down, but the perception is that crime's higher than ever. Uh, has that affected your ability to implement some reforms? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, uh, you're exactly right that the perception is that there is more violent crime, and, and that's not something that I am and am uh, doing personally. Uh, you know, but it is, that's happening in the community. And, you know, that's a product of social media. It's a product of, you know, people putting out press releases that emphasize some things that are happening. Um, you know, violent, violent crime is, is something that we prioritize, <clears throat> you know, prosecuting, dealing with. Uh, in the community because that is what most specifically directly affects the safety of the community. So, uh, you know, if somebody has a gun, somebody uh, shoots somebody or shoots at someone, that to me is very serious. Of course. One thing that we have uh, been experiencing, and, and when I say we, it's the law enforcement community, is that it's so often the case that people will not cooperate with the police. And to the point where somebody gets shot, shot in the leg or shot to the point where they, they know who did it and they are gonna be okay, but they've still been shot. No, yeah, they will a say, culture of that. They will say, I don't know who did it. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to like go off of that. Do you think that this increase in the perception that crime is increasing is because of 
all the protests that happened last year and just just vigilance has gone up because of those protests. So do you think that has like a direct relationship with this increase in perception? Uh, I think people are paying attention more to the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a product of the protests and, and of the focus nationally on the criminal justice system and, and some of the things that are happening, good and bad, mm-hmm. you know, mo- mostly bad, I think. Um, but, you know, it's it's also a product of the the conflict between the city and the mayor and the, the Ithaca Police Department and, and that conflict has created some some of the attention that is now being focused locally. Mm-hmm. I know a, a big priority for you is uh, trust in the police and the community. Uh, I've listened to some of your debates and you talked about how important that is. Currently, it's legal for police uh, to lie during interrogation. Um, and though that may lead to convictions, uh, do you think it can potentially damage the community's ability to trust the police? And do you think it's appropriate to prosecute with information gained that way? That's a, that's a very complex question. Uh, you know, you have to start off with the, the understanding that almost no one who is talking to the police is telling the truth. Uh, and, you know, that being said, I would like the police to act ethically across the board. And, and you know, when it comes to my responsibility is in my, the attorneys who work with me here, ethics and integrity are number one priority. We're not going to do anything. We're not allowed to lie. We're not allowed to misrepresent the evidence. Um, and there's, there's a very fine line, I think, between what the police can do in order to get to the truth and what they might do to, to get an arrest. And that's, it's tough to say, I, I, I would hesitate to say that they shouldn't be able to, uh, you know, make representations that might get to the truth. And, but at the same time, I, the last thing I want is a false confession. The last thing I want is someone to admit to doing something that they didn't do. Um, so I think you have to really judge it on a very subjective basis. Uh, you know, we want the police to be able to get to the truth. And um, that's really, I think anybody in the community would agree with that. Um, and everything that you do that, that limits the police from trying to get to the truth makes it less likely that the truth is going to come out. So that's a, you know, probably not a, a simple answer. Of course. No. Uh, you know, things aren't necessarily black and white when it comes to investigating a crime. Absolutely not. I mean, mm-hmm. I understand. There's currently a bill uh, in the New York Senate that would ban them being able to lie during interrogations. Do you think that's practical or I guess not? Uh, probably not. I mean, certainly I think that, uh, you know, there should be subjective limitations on what the police can do, you know, how long they can interrogate someone, the circumstances, under which they're allowed to question someone, um, and but that's there's there's thousands of cases out there relating you know, since Miranda versus Arizona about legality of interrogation or interviewing by the police and what defendants' rights are. 
um, you know, that's to, to put artificial restraints on it, I think is, is something that could be problematic. So I would hope that if the legislature is doing that, they would at least consult some prosecutors in New York State to, to get a perspective on it. Uh, one of the, uh, how do you think COVID-19 has affected the justice system, specifically right to a speedy trial? It's, it's had a negative effect. There's no question. There are people in the jail right now who would have had their day in court but for covid Mm -hmm. um, we keep a very close eye. I keep a very close eye on who's in the jail and what they're there for and what, you know, whether they need to be there. Mm -hmm. um, lately, the jail population, there's been about 35 people in the jail, which is extremely low compared to it was in the 80s when I first started in 2017. Uh, the average was in the 80s. Um, when COVID, COVID first hit, there were some people who were in the jail that might not have needed to be. And, and so I worked with the courts to, to get them out, to minimize the risk to them. And, and I think um, you know, there's a story online right now about how there have been some recent COVID cases in the jail. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're doing a pretty good job of, of being able to isolate people and help them through that process. And they're not exactly sure where it mm -hmm. came from because there's testing going on when you get there, there's a quarantine period when you get there. Um, but it, it still happened and, yeah. and they have enough space given the fact that there's only 35 people mm -hmm. to isolate them and, and separate them from the rest of the people who are there. Uh, but there's a guy who has been in jail waiting a trial since May of 2020. Mm -hmm. And you know his charge, there's a few factors that go into that. Number one, he's in on a parole violation, which is in addition to the new charges that he's waiting trial for. And there's been some parole legislation, yeah. that less is more legislation, which mm -hmm. I supported. That would not have let him out because it's not a technical violation. He's charged with a violent sex offense. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my concern is that we have a victim a young lady who was sexually assaulted who has been waiting for her day in court to get some closure as well uh, you know we we believe <clears throat> we believe in her we believe in the case we believe it's it's a case that will be proven beyond a reasonable doubt mm -hmm. to a jury uh, and <clears throat> you know to complicate it he he had the ability to go to trial in august mm -hmm. and his attorney and he decided to do it i'm sorry in June, and they decided to do it in August, and then there was an issue where we ran out of jurors in the trial. Uh, How do you run out of jurors? Was COVID <clears throat> also like a big issue in that, just getting jurors? It wasn't. Okay. I think that certain people would like you to think it was. The, the court summoned 200 jurors for a trial where you need really 14 people. Mm -hmm. uh, and for whatever reason, the judge let a lot of people go mm -hmm. for reasons that would not have worked with other judges or with in other situations. I'm not sure, you know, I don't can't really answer to why. Yeah. I mean, I can't get into his head, but mm -hmm. the, the end result was that we were unable to get 12 jurors and we ran out of the people who had been summoned. Mm -hmm. So 
they have to reschedule the trial for January. And it could have been sooner, but um, that's that's an unfortunate and probably the worst case scenario here. I mean, we don't have people in our jail like Khalif Browder, who people forgot about, you know, who their attorney forgot about, who the system forgot about. You know, I, I literally walk, I, I walk through the list that I get from the jail every Monday morning and say, you know, oh, this is a new person in jail. Why are they there? What were their charges? What's happening with this? Do they need to be there? We don't prosecute parole violations. So that's completely out of my control. And, and you know, other cases, people are there for violent crimes, but you know, 30, 35 people is per capita extremely low. And I think the lowest in New York State sure. as far as a jail population. This interview showed us just one of the many moving parts of the criminal justice system locally here in Ithaca. There's no one answer to our questions, whether it comes to rising crime, where it comes from, or what's fair for many people involved in the process, including the victim and the accused. We would like to thank District Attorney Matt Van Houten for leading us one step closer to a better understanding of what justice entails for him in Tompkins County. Tune in next week for the second part of our interview with District Attorney Van Houten, where we talk to him about different reform ideas, present issues in the systems, and past cases. For WICB News, this is Inbaini Anbarasin. And I'm Andrew Garapo. Halloween is right around the corner, and Halloween events in Tompkins County have begun and are continuing with full fervor, especially with both colleges being back with fully in-person semesters. News Director Himadri Sait talked to Zoe Van Nostrand and Ben Sandberg from the History Center in Tompkins County about their popular haunted history tour and other Halloween events they have organized. Halloween events in Tompkins County are in full swing, with everything from haunted houses to pumpkin decorating events on people's to-do lists. Among these events are the annual Halloween events organized by the History Center in Tompkins County, of which the Haunted History Tour has long been a community favorite. One of our, our long mainstays is our Haunted History Tours, which we have running through the end of October. Um, they definitely are a community favorite and um, a, a great way for us to connect folks to local history. And especially, I think, people who have uh, maybe don't think of themselves as interested in history. And this is a great gateway to getting people to take something they might be very interested and passionate about, something like true crime, um, which has uh, a robust following, and, and to then put it in this historical context. And uh, I think we find a lot of people who say, you know, maybe I do like history. That was Ben Sandberg director of the History Center in Tompkins County, Zoe Van Nostrand, Marketing and Visitor Experience Coordinator at the History Center, talked about other events that combine the spooky season with Ithaca's real history. Through our exhibit hall, we do have a specific haunted history exhibit that is up for the month of October, and this has some of our more grisly items from the collections. I won't go into too many details, but there's definitely some specific artifacts from some old murders in the community. Um, and also we have our uh, self-guided cemetery scavenger hunt, which is a booklet of activities that anyone can 
take and take a couple copies of and then go to any cemetery in the county and kind of engage with history in that way and see what things they can find. And so that's a little bit more of a DIY adventure, but I know that it was a big hit last year and also hoping that there's plenty of people who use it as an opportunity to explore some spaces they might not get to usually. According to Sandberg, the community's response to these events has been overwhelmingly positive, especially as people finally find a way to come out of their houses and do these things for Halloween after the pandemic. Van Nostrand also highlighted that one of the reasons their tours are so popular is because of the safety measures they ensure. And I also think that the format of the tours makes them very accessible, even while we're still practicing COVID safety. Um, We also felt this last year when we brought the tours back because they are entirely outside, the group is masked, and so there is this level of comfort. And I would say, especially after this summer, the local community has gotten very familiar with um, doing outdoor programs again, and that that is a safety measure that still feels very accessible no matter where you're kind of falling in your own COVID safety practices. They noted that due to the safety measures they undertook even last year, their tours were surprisingly resilient even during the pandemic, and things haven't really changed drastically for them this year. You know, it's kind of a funny thing that We did such a good job with setting up a functional set of programs last year that we really haven't had to make a lot of adjustments to our Halloween programming this year. I would say that the biggest difference is we have a lot more visitors coming into the exhibit hall and more people who are going out. So we're having more people hear about the programs. Um, And then one of the things that um, downtown is participating in that is that has come back is the Um, Halloween trick-or-treat for young kids at local businesses, and I know that wasn't able to happen last year. So we're seeing a lot more excitement from some of our community partners about returning to some of their Halloween programming. Uh, But luckily, our Halloween programming has worked pretty well last year and this year, so we didn't have to make too many changes. You know, the only adjustment is we increased our capacity a little bit more based on sort of the, the newest and latest guidance from various health, uh, public health bodies, um, but that um, we really, we continue to encourage, you know, clumping on our outside tours of social groups and pods um, to uh, uh, remind folks to be conscious of, of space and thank everybody for wearing their masks. All of our performers are, are fully vaccinated. Um, and so uh, that those were, those were systems, not the vaccine part, because they weren't available last year, but that they were part of um, sort of the model that we developed as we were thinking about how do we bring some of our programs to, to the community at the, the um, sort of start and, and early days of the pandemic. And um, we've, we've been real lucky to um, have a community who is willing to take some of the extra steps required to to meet us at a place where we can as a group have safe entertaining fun and um, uh, educational uh, learning opportunities and programs. The History Center incorporated COVID guidelines in their tours in creative ways. One of the things that I think might not have been made clear so far is that Ben our director is also one of the tour guides for these haunted (laughs) history tours. I think that might have been missed a little bit but one of the things that was crafted in our COVID response last year was finding a character for him that tied in with the need to wear a mask. And so his character specifically has to wear a mask because his daughter died during the 1918. uh, Further back, 
1903 typhoid epidemic. I was mixing up my Ithaca epidemics as, as you do these days. <laughs> um, but yeah. so specifically, and for our other character as well, we were able to kind of tie in both the historic nature of their death and the time they lived in with the character and the outfit that they wear. That is one of the changes that we made in the tour over the last two years was, you know, trying to, to, to help contextualize our current pandemic. But this is the first time uh, a group of people living in this place we call Tompkins County have dealt with, you know, a deadly disease. And so um, uh, being able to bring some of those forward stories forward, we have found them to be particularly resonant with today's audience. Since Ben had now revealed the crucial information that he is also one of the tour guides on the Haunted History Tour, I had to ask what his favorite part of the tour was. Uh, it is, so we've got, as Zoe had said, we've got an exhibit downstairs um, that has some physical archival and uh, three-dimensional objects that are directly related to a couple of the stories. And I think those are the most exciting part for me because they tie to our core mission of that, you know, our primary, the programs are great, exhibits are great, like they're meaningful ways to engage community members with local history, but our, our primary purpose is the preservation of a historical record from photographs to objects. Um, it, it's really incredible the, the variety of things that we are preserving for future generations of Tompkins County residents. And so the stories where we get to connect you know, on the tour, connect our audience to that preservation effort and the sort of stories of discovery that we have around objects and items in our collection. Um, that, that is the, the most important for me um, because it really highlights that critical piece of our mission and um, connects our audiences to them. They also highlighted that over the last year, they have had more space to collaborate with partners in the community. Well, I'd say that one of the interesting things with the past year is that there has been sometimes a little bit more space and time for collaboration because so many people had limited public hours. Um, and so you've seen some really phenomenal partnerships arise and also kind of a growth in um further support and encouragement of previous existing partnerships that existed, like the Discovery Trail, which has gotten to do a lot of just kind of internal work and bolstering of connections and more time for community meetings and connections. Um, I also think of the Read Local Partnership, which was spearheaded by Odyssey Bookstore, but connected all the downtown Ithaca spaces that sell books and has done, you know, a number of different like sales and workshops and maps um, across downtown that is really just cross-supporting and really, as we hear more about how COVID has impacted small businesses and small communities across the country and across the world, it is very apparent how rich and vibrant our local community is in that when we band together and support local that it does come through. Look out for more Halloween-themed stories coming up next week. For WICB News, I'm Hamadri Said. That's all for tonight's edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. 
And if you'd like to listen to past stories, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear full shows anywhere, anytime. Also subscribe to the latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations, Jeremy Menard, WICB Station Manager, Connor Hibbert, and Programming Director, Lou Baron. Ithaca Now is produced by News Director Himadri Seth and this week's correspondents, Andrew Garoppolo, myself, and Himadri Seth. All of the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundas of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at wicb.org. We will be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Inbaini Anbarasan, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.